0: This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at org. And now, this week's message. Hi. Go ahead and grab a seat and good morning everybody. Man, I'm looking forward to some time together with you today. It is so good to have you here, and if it's your first time, I want to welcome you to New Life. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'll be guiding us uh, for the rest of our time together this morning. And if you've been coming for a long time, you're thinking, what on earth? Why is he out here already? Here's why I'm out here. You're like, what? do We got to gear up for you. I get that. I get that. Here's why I'm out here already. Today is a special day. Today is a baptism service day, and we're so excited about that. Yeah, so fun. And that means that after the message this morning, we're going to have an extended time of worship, and we're going to invite—I know we've got at least one or two people who are planning on being baptized today. We're going to invite them to come up to baptism in the midst of our worship time together. We want to give some space for that. And you might be here, and something this morning triggers you, and you realize, actually, I should be getting baptized today. And if that's you, I want to tell you, we're going to invite you to come up and be baptized as well. And we've got everything you need. We've got towels. We've got shirts that you could put over your clothes. We've even got trash bags uh, for your car because obviously we're not going to get wet outside. So um, we've got trash bags for your car. It's, it's a win-win-win, which I really like. I don't know what the third win is, but I'm going to figure it out in the next 30 minutes as I continue to talk. That's how I figure things out. I just talk until I like what I say. So... <laughs> Uh, so it's just going to be a great day. And that's why we're starting today. And we're going to start things a little bit differently. So I want you to go ahead and do something for me. Um, grab that program that you received when you walked in and grab that card that says start here. Uh, this is our connection card. It's a communication card. It's a way for uh, you to have complete access to our pastoral team so that we can pray for you partner with you and serve you in any way that would be beneficial to you, to your family, to your friends. So go ahead and fill that out with your name and maybe your email address if you're new with us today. And then on the back, there are just some ways that you can, um, you can connect with us. So, uh, obviously we're getting, we're doing baptisms today. If you want to get baptized, you could come forward with that. But prayer is a big one. Uh, we believe in prayer that God moves in response to his people's prayers. And so if we can pray for you this week, let us know. If God has answered a prayer, would you let us know that too so we can celebrate that with you? In just about a minute and a half, we're going to pass some baskets and I'm going to invite you just to drop this card into the basket with any prayer requests you have. If you want to get plugged into a ministry, there's a ton of ministry opportunities up top. Go ahead and do that. Uh, We're also going to be receiving our tithes and offerings. And so if you came prepared to give, you can get your tithes and offerings ready and put them right inside that envelope inside your program. Or you can text to give or you can give online. There are a ton of ways to do it, but we want to invite you, if you came today, And part of this worship service for you is practicing generosity back to God. You can go ahead and and get your tithes and offerings ready for that. And a few things as you're getting everything ready, and the baskets are going to be passed in just a second. Uh, the first is this. If you've been uh, gathering change for the orphans in India, today is the day to turn in your change. So if you left it at home, you can bring it back in and drop it off here. If you've been preparing a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child, today is the collection day for shoeboxes. So if you forgot that at home as well, you can go ahead and, uh, and bring that in this afternoon. We should be here till about 2.30 or 3, and you can drop that off. And, and this is so exciting, do you realize— that i'm only one sunday away from officially being able to wish you a merry christmas do you realize that like that is very exciting am i the only one who's been playing christmas carols in my car all month come on raise your hand if you're with me yes my people i love it 104.9 christmix i love it i love it hey we have a christmas eve invitation postcard inside your program this is strategic Because you're going to be with family and friends over holiday, over the the Thanksgiving weekend. And we want to give these to you so you could invite a friend to come to Christmas Eve. It's going to be absolutely a brilliant time together where God's going to be moving powerfully in our community. So we put those in there so you could give that to a friend. Not because I assume that you don't know when Christmas Eve happens because you are very intelligent. I'm giving this to you so that you can give it to a friend. Uh, Hey, I'm going to pray and then we'll pass those baskets. Oh, I almost forgot. I almost forgot. Poker for Presence is a Texas Hold'em tournament uh, that supports families from COTS, the committee on the shelter list. You've got two more weeks to buy your Poker for Presence ticket. You need to buy it, though. Buy it early, because once space fills up, it is filled up. We have a huge uh, Texas Hold'em tournament in here. It's so fun. There's the information. Buy your tickets out in the lobby. Find my buddy Ryan. You won't regret it. All right, uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to pass. Let's do it. Lord, thank you so much. That we get to begin this time uh, digging into your word. Thank you, Lord, that um, that you gave us intelligence and you gave us a mind and you desire for us to know you more fully and trust you more completely as we experience you uh, this morning. And so I'm asking God that you would open our hearts, open our minds to all that you would have for us this morning. I'm praying for my friends this morning who are here today, and they are so excited about everything you're doing in their lives. Lord, I celebrate that with them. I'm praying for my friends this morning uh, who are grieving today or who might be hurting or going through a tough time. God, I'm asking for your comfort for them this morning, and I'm, uh, I'm sitting with them in that moment, and I'm asking God that you are a God who meets us uniquely. So would you meet each of my friends in this room uniquely together this morning? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and pass those baskets because you're such a highly intelligent group of people, we're going to multitask. So they're passing baskets, but you're going to be here, okay? Lock it in. We are in a series called, I Believe in God, But. I Believe in God, But. And we're asking questions like this. What do we do when we're reading and we find a place in the Bible that does not fit our Sunday school version of what we understood God to be? What do we do in those moments, We're asking questions like, what do I do when I read the Old Testament of the Bible and it doesn't line up with the Jesus that I experienced in the New Testament of the Bible? What do I do in those moments? Do I just skip the page? Do I just turn my brain off? Do I just assume that that someone smarter than me, a pastor or a priest, probably has an answer and so I don't need to worry about it because someone else probably knows the answer to that question? The truth is, that might have worked 50 years ago, where we would just sit in a church and we would assume, well, the pastor probably has a good answer to that. But then we hit the 60s. And in the 60s, we had the civil rights movement. Uh, and in the 60s, we had Vietnam. And all of a sudden, as a culture, we started to question those in authority over us. And then we hit the 70s. And in the 70s, we had Watergate. And that was the nail in the coffin for us. And as a society, we said, nope, blind faith will not work for me any longer. I need answers to my questions. And if you don't have a good enough answer, I am out of here. And that's the culture we find ourselves in today. And that's the reason why a quarter of people who just a generation ago would have said, yeah, I am a a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. A quarter of those people are now identifying themselves as nuns. Not not nuns, but (laughs) Nuns, N-O-N-E, non-affiliated. Here's what they would say. I believe in God, but I don't know if I believe everything in the Bible. I believe in God, but I need some answers to my serious questions if I'm really going to trust God completely. And so we're dealing with, with the buts of the Bible, because the butts are causing the butts to leave the chairs in the church, and I'm not okay with it. And I hope you're not either. Because I'm telling you, Jesus, Jesus is the hope of the world. And if we get stuck on our butts and we can't find answers, then we might be needlessly walking away from God when we, in this very moment, should be drawing close to God. Today we're going to deal with, um, with this topic. I believe in God, but what do I do with the fact that God seems to endorse slavery in the Bible? Now, for some of you, you're like, yeah, what about that? Others of you are just about to say, God endorses slavery in the Bible? (laughs) No, I'm upset. Good. Good. Because we're going to deal with it this morning. And in order to do it, we have to put ourselves back a few thousand years. So just kind of sit back and relax. You can get your notes ready, but we're not going to use them for about five minutes. Instead, I want you to picture yourself and our community as slaves. You're a slave, your parents were slaves. Your grandparents were slaves. Your great grandparents were slaves. Your great great grandparents were slaves. Generation after generation after generation, you have been a slave. It's all you've ever known. You can't remember a time in your history when you were not in slavery. For 400 years, your people have been enslaved. And they've been crying out to God, God, free us from slavery. But really, it's at this point, 400 years later, it's more of a Hail Mary pass than anything else. God, if you can do anything, free us. Now, something's happened in the last 400 years. You've gone from one guy and one family to 12 sons. And these 12 sons became 12 patriarchs of these 12 families. And these families grew, and they were a unique and distinct culture because no one wanted to marry into slavery. And so other nations and other tribes, they wouldn't marry with you. So you became this unique group of people that was all from these 12 families that became this great nation. And you're crying out to God as you grow and expand, God, free us. But there's silence. Generation after generation after generation of silence. And then God answers. And when God answers, things start to move very quickly. God sends you a leader. At first, you don't know about him. He's kind of funky. He came from the desert. But then he begins to uh, be used by God. There are these signs and miracles happening, and your Egyptian oppressors let you go. Not only do they let you go after 400 years of slavery? But they give you wealth on your way out. They give you money. They give you animals. They give you possessions. So now you've gone from 400 years of being a slave culture with no money, with no possessions, with nothing to call your own. And now you're leaving Egypt like, like that. With money, with animals, with possessions. And you head out into the wilderness. And God says, I've actually got a place for you set aside. And I'm going to lead you there but you're in this weird spot because you've never been a free nation. As long as you can remember, your parents didn't tell you anything about being a free nation. Your grandparents didn't. Your great-great-grandparents might remember some freedom, but they're long gone. And the question becomes, how do we live as this unique nation? How do we govern ourselves? Now we've got all these people, but we have no system of government. We have no laws. We have no structures over us. On top of that, God says to you, I'm going to be uniquely yours, and you're going to be uniquely mine, and you're going to live as a nation that's different from every other nation around you. The question is, how? And in three chapters of the second book of the Bible, a book called Exodus, God tells you how. For three chapters, God begins to lay out this plan. These are the laws that you will follow. These are the ordinances that you'll make. It's everything from murder and manslaughter to liability for your animals. It talks about theft. It talks about assault. It talks about rape. It talks about restitution. It talks about personal injury. There are disability laws. There are laws on ways to treat the marginalized and the weak among you. There are all these kinds of laws. And this is, this is a part of the Bible that if you did not know the backstory, if you're like, I think I'm going to pick up my Bible today, and I'm going to flip open and just see what God wants to say to me, and you flipped open to Exodus chapter 21, you'd say, what on earth is happening right now? This is like the most boring thing ever. But we have to understand, this book Exodus is a history of the exodus of this people group. From 400 years of slavery into freedom, into a land that God had promised them. And this is the part in Exodus where God says, this is how. I want to govern you to be a unique people who puts people first. This is how I want to govern you, to be a people that values, shows compassion, shows decency to other people, shows fairness to other people. And I want you to notice how God, through a guy named Moses, starts out the laws in Exodus chapter 21. Now we're going to read, 11 verses. So try not to tune out. Try to check in. But notice, when he says, this is how I want you to love people, notice where he starts. He says, these are the laws that I set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes to you alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the woman and her children belong to the master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and I love my wife and my children, I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost. He will pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be your servant for life. Verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free, as a male servant does. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he's broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, or marital rights. If he does not provide for her these three things, she is to go free without any payment at all. And right here is where we're thinking why on earth would God start out his national laws? Why on earth would God start out the ordinances that would govern his people by laying out codes for slavery? Why doesn't God just make it really simple? Don't own slaves. That's the kind of God that we think he should be, right? Well, it's really interesting. In order to understand why God lays this out the way he does, and I've been wrestling with this. Of all, of all the messages we're going to teach in this series, this was the one where I thought to myself, yeah, God, wh- what's going on here? And I've been wrestling and digging and studying and praying. But to understand why God starts his laws. Remember, these are laws that are supposed to add value to people. Why he starts them out with slavery. We have to talk about our own history as a nation when it comes to slavery. See, we can't think about that without thinking about the North American slave trade. That was a lot like the Egyptian slave trade that I described to you earlier. Generation after generation after generation of abuse and neglect with no hope and no freedom. But this thing that God's instituting right here is not that. This thing that God is setting up right here is different than our history when it comes to slavery. In fact, God gives us in this passage at least four reasons why he sets up slavery. And what I want to do is just dig into those and think about them a little bit. And the first is this. God, he allowed slavery. He actually legislated slavery to help people who were stuck in extreme poverty. God did not abolish slavery because God knew in that moment if he did away with slavery, then people who were in the extreme poor community would never find any hope. See, slavery in the Old Testament, in God's terms, was like an apprenticeship, not like the North American slave trade. And here's how we know this. A few chapters later in Exodus 25, this is the rest of that law. It says, If any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, hits extreme poverty, cannot care for themselves— and they sell themselves to you, don't make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you, and they're to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. And what he's saying is this, if someone in the community could not provide for themselves or their family, they could go to a wealthy person's house, they could knock on the door, and they could say to them, I want to sell myself into slavery under you as an apprenticeship. Teach me what you know. If you're a merchant, teach me that. If you're a farmer, teach me agriculture. If you're a woodworker, teach me woodworking, and I'll be with you for six years. I'm giving myself to you. In, In return, you don't have to pay me, but provide enough food for my family teach me a skill, provide food for my family so that we can survive. And they would do it for six years. And then on the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, they would be set free with a new skill with food for their family. They'd go back to their clan and they would be able to work on their own. And so it was God's way of protecting people who were in extreme poverty. Rather than a welfare state, God said, no, I, I actually want the community to wrap around you and give you the, t- school, the skills you need to learn. The other thing was that God allowed slavery to give rights to women. And this was a huge one. It says up there in Exodus 21, remember 7 through 11, it says, if a daughter's set to be married, she loses all rights. She had rights under her father, but when she's set to be married, she loses rights under her father and she comes under the headship of the patriarch of the family she's marrying. And what they would do is, they wanted to make sure it was a good fit. And so a woman's father would give her or sell her to another family, and she would be a servant in the household while they saw if she was a good fit for the family. If she was a good fit, they would marry her, she would become part of the family, and she would join into that clan. But if she wasn't a good fit, if she wasn't a good fit, they couldn't sell her. See, in the other cultures around, women were traded like commodities— God said that women are not commodities to be traded. Women are people in my design, made in my image to be valued and respected and to be protected because in that culture, women had no protection. And so this law is set out to protect women. It says you can't just sell her or trade her like a commodity to a foreign country where she'd be a slave for the rest of her life. You must take care of her. You must make sure she's treated well. You must meet her needs. You must marry her and if you choose not to marry her, if you take another wife, you cannot deprive her of her marital rights. I think we all know what that means. And the reason for that was she needed an heir to her family. She needed a son. It's okay. We're all grown-ups here. They're giggling over there. This is fun. He's giggling because he's a sixth grade teacher, and he knows what happens when he talks about that in class. But what would happen was if if a husband got a new wife, he'd leave the first wife behind. He wouldn't want her anymore. And God says, you may not do that. You must give her an heir so that she can be taken care of. It's God's way to protect women. This, in the Old Testament, when women had no value, had no rights, this was God's way of saying to women, you are valuable and you deserve value. Now think about that. This is one of the reasons why God set up slavery. And again, it's not slavery like we've known it. It's a different kind of slavery. It's a slavery for protection for women. God also allowed slavery in cases of bankruptcy. See, in the ancient world, if you made a deal with someone and you could not pay them off, you could go to debtor's prison. But in debtor's prison, you were no good to anybody. You couldn't pay off the debt, you couldn't support your family, and your family would go into a continuing cycle of poverty much like we see in our country today. Where a husband goes off to prison, a family is left by themselves, and poverty continues generation after generation after generation. And God said that's not the way it's supposed to be. So sell yourself into slavery as a way to pay off the debt. Now you're working to pay off your debt, you're making it right by the person you borrowed money from, and you're caring for your family in the process so your family does not have to sink down to the depths of poverty. And then the last one was this, God allowed slavery to make restitution when a debt was owed. The people in this time were people, just like we're people. And there were people who stole from each other. And this law came about that said, if someone steals from you, and then they sell whatever they stole, or they stole an animal, and they eat it, or they kill it, they slaughter it, and they can't pay you back, You don't want them to come work for you. They just stole from you, right? So what do you do? You can actually sell that person into slavery, and you'll get the price for a slave, which was 30 pieces of silver, and you'll take that slave price, and then they'll work off the rest of their money for someone else. These are at least four reasons, at least four, why God actually instituted slavery in the Bible. But when we just look at it, on first glance, it's like, God, why would you do such a horrible thing? The truth is, God began the abolition of slavery in Exodus chapter 21, when he instituted laws to protect the vulnerable in society. And he did it so that slavery as we know it would never happen. God's laws around slavery in Exodus 21 were a protection from the slave trade that we experienced in North America. They were rules and laws and guides set to empower people To find freedom so that we'd never have to experience what we experienced in our country and it was the abuse of the bible that caused christians in our country to go into a deplorable time of slavery and a deplorable time in our country's history but that was never god's desire And God led with these laws on slavery because, remember, his people had been slaves for 400 years, and the slavery they experienced was just like the slave trade that we experienced in our country, just like it. And he said to them, I don't want you to do the same thing that was done to you. There's a different way. There's a better way. Because people matter. And no one, from the most marginalized to the weakest— to the gender who was seen as less than, no one, no one deserves the kind of slavery that you had experienced. No one. Because every person matters. The poor matter. The marginalized matter. Women matter. Children matter. He said foreigners matter. People matter. And slavery in the Old Testament at least in God's design, was an empowering movement, not a movement that tore away. But what does this mean for us now? Well, what do we do with that? Okay, it's like, well, that's good information. And I was thinking to myself, Amen. Like, what do you say at the end? May it be so? I, I don't know. <laughs> So then I was thinking, well, what does God say in this movement as we move into the New Testament of the Bible? And here's the interesting thing that I realized. Did you know that you and I were actually bought for a price? Did you know that? All right, now we're going to get to preaching. That was a little teaching. It's time for a little preaching. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know Jesus' followers, people in the community, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You've received the Holy Spirit from God. And then he says this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body." That's what he says. Honor God with your body. Why? Because you're bought with a price. He says, God bought you. God purchased you. God says, you had a debt that you had to repay. That debt was sin. When I say sin, it's like, what does that mean? Sin is simply the things that we think, that we say, and that we do that hurt us, that hurt those around us that we love, ultimately that break our relationship with a perfect God. That is sin. And the problem with sin is it's not something that's just out here. It's actually something that is in here that has enslaved us. That's why you lay in bed and you think, I'm never going to Never going to do that again or say that again or look at her again or go there again or watch that again or smoke it again or drink it again. Am I speaking somebody's language? And then a week later, a month later, a year later, you're looking at it, you're going there, you're smoking it, you're drinking it, and you're thinking to yourself, why do I keep doing this? The Bible says it's because you're a slave to sin. That sin has enslaved you. And Jesus paid the debt to free you from your slavery. And what was the debt? Well, we're going to celebrate it in just a minute. That Jesus, who was God in the flesh, left heaven and came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And then he gave his life freely as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the forgiveness for our sin, to pay that debt that we could not pay. And he died. And three days later, he rose again. And it was witnessed by hundreds of people. And when he rose, he broke the power of sin. He broke our slavery to sin. So we do not have to live in that slavery anymore. And we're told this is how it happens. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, Judas, who was one of his followers, he went out to the religious leaders and he said to them, I'll show you where Jesus is, but you owe me something You need to pay me something if I'm going to turn Jesus over to you. You know how much they paid him? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, where have we heard that before? That was the price that a slave was sold for to repay a debt. And Jesus was sold for a slave price to repay our debt that we could not pay on our own. And he did it freely so that we could be free. So we're no longer slaves to sin. We don't have to live under that curse anymore. We're told that when we become followers of Jesus, God's spirit moves in us and the spirit of God that's in us is more powerful than that sin which had held us so that we can be free. The question becomes, what do we do with our freedom? What do we do with it? God gave it to us. He purchased it for us. He has set us free. Now, what do we do? Well, Peter, who wrote a few letters in the New Testament, he starts his letters out by saying, this is what I'm going to do with my freedom. Jude, who wrote a few letters, and wrote a letter in the New Testament, starts his letter out and says, this is what I'm going to do with my freedom. James, the half-brother of Jesus, starts his letter out and says, this is what I'm going to do with my freedom. And Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he says, this is what I'm going to do with my freedom. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I've been called to be apostle, a set, set apart for the gospel. That word servant literally means bond servant. It means Slave. And it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, where we started this morning. Here's what it says If a servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges who sat out at the city gates. Take him before the judges, and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, and then he will become a servant a bond servant for life. See, in the seventh year of slavery, the slave could go free if they wanted to. But if they realized, I love my master, I want to live under the protection of my master. I want to live in the goodness of my master's household. I love all the gifts my master has given to me. My master has given me a wife. My master has given me kids. My my master has given me a a, skill set and a job. My master has given me everything. Then the servant at the time of his freedom, could say, I don't want to go free. I want to stay under your leadership and your safety and your protection for the rest of my life. And he would go out to the doorpost and they would take his ear and they would pierce it. They'd give him an earring. And in that moment, a person whose freedom had been given to them freely placed their freedom under the leadership of their master friends, you and I have great freedom in Christ. He has set us free. He has forgiven us. We lost a friend recently in our church community who walked with God as a child, but the butts took him away. Until seven years ago, the majority of his life was spent away from God. Seven years ago, he came to new life with his wife. and He found the freedom of Christ. God set him free. He lived under the leadership of Christ. And just recently, he passed away and went to be with God his father. Was he free early on? We could argue semantics that God had set him free early. But it wasn't until he came back and lived under the leadership of God, that he experienced the safety and freedom and protection of his heavenly father. So Peter and Paul and James and Jude and Kevin and many of you say, we want to exercise our freedom. This freedom that God has given us by choosing to place it under the leadership of God. So when God says go, we go. When God says stay, we stay. When God says give, we give. When God says forgive, we forgive. When God says love, we love. When God says serve, we serve. And you know what our, our picture is? In the Old Testament, that picture of becoming a bondservant was to go out in front of the community and pierce your ear. Some of you, like, especially if you're a teenager right now, you're thinking, let's do that. That was me. I had five piercings at different points in my life. I was like a human pincushion. It was amazing. But we don't do that anymore. You know what we do? You know what our public declaration is? I'll give you a hint. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you are willing to voluntarily take your freedom and put it under my leadership, then declare it to the community of faith, by getting baptized. That's what he says. He says, this is your doorpost. This is your earring. Come forward, become a bond servant, and live under the leadership and the freedom of your master, and declare it publicly to this community. And some of us today, you've heard me talk about baptism. You, you don't even remember how many times you've heard me talk about Baptism. And every time you thought, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, no, it's not for me. Yeah, I'm telling you. And, and listen, no pressure, no pressure. This is a, a low-pressure sale, but it's an assumptive sale. And here's what I mean. If you're a Jesus follower, this is your invitation to publicly declare it. This is your time. We got towels. We got shirts. We got plastic bags. We got a video. We got pictures. Your family will see it, but more importantly, you're declaring in front of this community, today is the day That I choose publicly to take my freedom and put it under the leadership of my Lord. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? What a great gift God has given to us. If you're here today and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, you've never experienced his freedom, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. To say to God, God, I want the freedom that you offer. I want the forgiveness that you offer. I realize that I am a slave to sin and I cannot buy back my freedom. But I recognize, Jesus, that you've already purchased my freedom. Today, I simply come and accept your forgiveness and accept the freedom that you offer. You paid the price so that I could go free if you're ready to do that, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to pray a prayer of commitment to God. And then I'm going to invite you, if you make a decision today to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to invite you, come forward and declare it in baptism. And if you've been a Christian for 30 years— but you've never come forward and declared it publicly in baptism that you are putting yourself under the leadership of God. I'm going to invite you to do that today as well. Our worship team is going to come in just a second. They're going to lead us in worship. It's going to be a beautiful time. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing, and then we're going to celebrate as God leads. If if God leads one of us to get baptized, we'll celebrate that. If God leads 30 of us to get baptized, we will celebrate that. If you want me to baptize you, I would love to do it. If you want Pastor Ron or one of our other pastors to do it, they would love to do it. If you'd like a friend... Spouse, someone who's been instrumental in your life to baptize you, bring them up. Let them do it. I will walk them through the entire process. It's very easy, and I promise they'll let you up. Okay, I promise. They will. They will. We've never lost anybody. Heather, who's on worship, she's a nurse. You'll be fine. She'll jump right down. Don't let anything stop you today. Hey, let's let's pray together, and then we have communion around these tables. It's a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice, which represents Jesus' blood and body that he gave freely to pay the price for our sin when he died on the cross. And so I'm going to invite us after we pray to stand up. I'm going to invite you to go and grab the communion elements and take them back to your seat and celebrate communion on your own as we worship together. And if you're coming to be baptized, just come on forward. We'll have people on either side who will walk you through the process. Come on forward and then we would love to baptize you. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for the freedom that you've given. Thank you that you purchased our freedom, that you allowed yourself to be sold for a slave's wage to pay off a debt that we could not pay. And God, we want to live under your leadership in your safety, in your protection, in your partnership following you wherever you take us. And if you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, then today's your day. You can say yes to him. You can invite him to be the leader of your life by repeating a simple prayer. Just whisper it where you're sitting. You can say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to walk in relationship with you. So would you come into my life, God? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to be a bond servant who walks under the leadership and the love of my God? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.